Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdottir. Not only has Johanna taught at Yale University and held research posts in Reykjavik as well as Harvard, she now works at the National Library of Norway in Oslo, where her research focuses on Vikings, Old Norse Icelandic sagas, mythology and poetry, medieval manuscripts and gender. And now she has released her exceptional book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World. Johanna, it's a delight to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Yvonne. I'm delighted to be on. Well, I must admit that I was more than a little excited about the release of Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, and since I've had my copy of your fantastic book, I've been happily immersed in reading it. Um, so you mentioned that you started working on the book in 2018, and it must have been a huge undertaking because the amount of research and knowledge contained within the pages is staggering. Oh, thank you. Um... Yes, I um, I was able to work on it full time, and so um, I sort of wrote it um, in two thousand and eighteen. I was mostly finished with it at the end of the year, um, and I did a lot of research, um, but all, I already knew some things as well, um, just from my my years of, of doing research on the sagas and the the Norse poetry. Um, but I read a lot of new things or like th things that were new to me like archaeology and um, runology and some other things. Um, hopefully I've, I've been able to kind of bring it together. Goodness I would say you absolutely have, it's a wonderful book. So when we talk about the Viking Age world what kind of um, time periods and locations does that encompass? So the Viking world um, as we understand it and use that label, um, it sort of starts around 800 or like the late 8th century in Scandinavia um, and um, there's just something that changes, like it seems to be a combination of things. Um, one thing is that the, the design of the ships um, seems to improve so they're able to go further distances, um, meaning that they can go go away and like um to do more trade and raiding and so on um and then all of that wealth kind of flows back into scandinavia and um and then that really kind of spurs on this this great um change in society and um there's just so much more movement around um of, of people and goods and they um they start traveling further and further and they're taking land and like they they go to Iceland for example and all the way to Greenland um, and also they go east um, and south and they are sort of settling and um, so there's a lot of, of things that change and then that kind of happens for about 300 years and then um, sort of by the late uh, 11th century um, that, that kind of um, is the end of the Viking Age, really. That's when all of this travel stops and and, um, and the, the states uh, sort of rise and things become just more um, static again. 
And so in the Norse myths and sagas, the Valkyries are these incredible creatures with wonderful descriptions. Why are they such powerful figures in Norse mythology, do you think? Yeah, that's um, that's a great <clears throat> mystery, I suppose. Um, it's really interesting, I think, that they have this figure that um, is female and it's so attached to battle and war and violence, which we kind of normally consider a very male-dominated sphere. And um, I guess the Valkyrie figure has puzzled and intrigued and fascinated people for um, centuries. And um, I, I don't really know why the Valkyrie like, becomes as prominent in the mythology um, as she does, but I, I sort of have the feeling that maybe that reflects you know, the fact that women maybe had a stronger social position than maybe in many other societies. Um, but, but yeah, it's sort of impossible to know for sure. And the Valkyrie meant different things for different people. And, you know, when you look at the different um, texts, you know, different manifestations of these figures, some of the texts display, uh, depict them as quite sort of scary, bloodthirsty, um, just not very attractive figures. And then another um, text, they're sort of more like robotic and, um, you know, neither sort of good or bad or anything. They're just, they just are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in, there's another manifestation where they're sort of, you know, romantic companions and, and like, yeah, objects of, of sexual desire and so on. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Well, Valkyrie is an excellent description for the women that you talk about in your book. And I was wondering, could you possibly tell us a little bit about some of them and why they stand out as such strong figures in the sagas and poems? I'm obviously fascinated by all of them. I think, um, I mean, I sort of go through phases where I have different favourites. I think this woman who I talk about in the beginning of chapter two who is this um, illegitimate daughter of the, the King of Sweden, mm-hmm. and her name is Astrid. And she's just really interesting. And um, when she's young, um, she, um, her, so her father and the King of Norway, they're both called Olaf, which is not very helpful <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to narrate the story. Um, but uh, they have a kind of, I, I guess you could you could call it a feud um, or some sort of um, disagreement about like a, a region that's in um, sort of on the border between Norway and Sweden and they both want to rule it. And in order to settle the matter, the Norwegian king is going to marry the daughter, the, the legitimate daughter of the, the Swedish one. And then the Swedish one kind of pulls out of it and there's this crisis and um, there, there's this even talk of maybe that they're going to go to war. And then Astrid um, just rides off. She goes to Norway and basically proposes marriage to the Norwegian king. And um, and he kind of, um, the, the story gets told in very different ways and different sources. But um, the gist of it is that he agrees to the marriage and um, the sort of threat of war is averted. And she's kind of given credit in many of the sources for for pulling this off, um, this peace treaty. And um, and then in sort of some of the later sources, or or later in her 
her life after he dies um she has like a she's like a stepmother basically to his son by a concubine and the son gets put forth as the heir to the throne and she supports the son and um, is able to kind of persuade lots of people um, to join that cause and in the end that son becomes the king um, of Norway again so she's like she's really um, good at like politics basically and the way that it kind of gets represented in the sources is uh, quite positive and um, admirable I, I think she's really really cool and fascinating um, but there's lots of others as well there's one other royal woman who is heavily pregnant and then um, her husband gets murdered in one of these you know squabbles between <laughs> contenders for the throne and she has to like again sort of run off in the middle of the night and she she goes to some island um and gives birth and then um i think like the the king and queen's henchmen discover them and then she has to escape in the night again and like the kind of description of her hiding you know in in the bush or something it's just really fascinating oh, um, definitely so yeah these women were tough <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think another one who kind of stood out for me was um, when you talked about Freydis and um, yeah. in Vinland and um, she's heavily pregnant again and trying to make her escape. And the, the image of her is quite something else. Yeah, I know. And it's again, like just that economical saga style. I mean, in the saga, the, the story about her escaping or trying to escape from the attacking natives and then... Um, you know, she sees that she's not going to be able to run away from them, and then she turns around and, like, sort of takes up this sword and starts slapping it on her chest. Yeah. But um, it's only a few lines in the saga, but it's just so vividly described. And especially, I think there's this kind of line about how she's moving quite slowly, and um, because she's pregnant, like, she's obviously um, not walking as you would, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. normally. And, yeah, it's just, you can just really picture it, um, and, and that's the kind of beauty of the sorrows. I really enjoyed the structure of your book, and with each chapter you look at the key points in a woman's life, and what might be the times of greatest change for women living in Norse society, and did that differ regarding your social status? Yeah, I mean, thank you, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there were several sort of turning points in, in a woman's life and um, where where her life would have been like very different and um, her identity might have changed quite a lot from the way she saw herself and the way others saw her. Um, and the, the first major change um, is when she kind of gets um, old enough to marry and then that's kind of the point where a lot of saga authors bring a female character into the saga for the first time is like when she's maybe around 14, 15, it's time to marry. Um, and then that like whole business of who she's going to marry and how much of a say she has in that, um, that's an issue that a lot of saga authors and poets are interested in. And then sort of married life gives you you know, you're suddenly in, in your own home as opposed to your parents' home. And so you have actually a, a fair amount of authority that you didn't have 
um, you know, as a child, basically. Mm. And you're able to kind of um, make decisions and, and spend a certain amount of money without asking your husband. You're able to replace your husband at the assembly, for example, if he's away or if he's ill. And um, there's all kinds of other sort of legal um, rights that you achieve. And obviously, kind of just as a partner of your husband, you know, at, at least if the husband is <laughs> sort of amenable, then I mean, women are often depicted as like their advice, advice givers um, and sort of companions in whom they, they trust and confide and like talk things over with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, sort of if you lose your husband, if he dies in one of these feuds or wars that are described in the sagas, then. Again, I think your life would change quite a lot, and um, you might find yourself much more vulnerable to um, either just you know threats um, to you and your family, whether violence or kind of sometimes sexual violence, obviously. But then also kind of you know sometimes there are these relatives who want to bully the woman into a new match, and the woman might not want that but sometimes she's not really able to resist that yeah so um but yeah it's it varies quite a lot it seems um, what what kind of status women have like even within the same sort of category of age and legal status and marriage status and class and sort of who her relatives were and so on would have kind of complicated each woman's um personal you know situation and so how much of an impact did either the father or the male representative of the household have on a woman's future on her betrothal or her marriage and actually as i'm asking this question it's reminding me of in the deep-minded and the choices she made for her granddaughters i think viking girls wouldn't have seen getting married as necessarily a bad thing but i mean there is kind of a fair amount of discussion in the written sources about, you know, to what extent they should have a say. Um, and I mean, some sources just kind of mention when somebody gets married um, as a complete sort of non-event, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it doesn't really seem to occur to them that you know, a woman might want to have a choice. <laughs> um, but but then in some other sources like the you know, they sort of depict a woman maybe as being bullied into a marriage and then the marriage doesn't go well. And so um, they seem to be kind of turning up the question, like, you know, is it maybe such a good idea yeah. to, to bully women into to marriages they don't necessarily want um, or at least, you know, choose partners that they are well suited to uh, both in terms of maybe temperament but especially social status and you know marriages where the, the, the bride thinks that the groom is beneath her mm. um, they usually don't go there <laughs> another area that was really fascinating for me to read about as well was motherhood and um, the importance of child rearing or um, the dangers in uh, giving birth as well. Um, mm-hmm. And also the kind of complicated relationship that mothers could sometimes have with their children. Um, on the one hand, they appear very nurturing and attentive and loving. 
And then there are others who have an altogether completely different experience with their children and it's <laughs> a little bit disastrous <laughs> in some areas. <laughs> yes, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it really it does seem to be quite an interesting kind of complex relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a way um, that's, you know, more true to life than sort of reducing um, mothers, you know, just to kind of one-dimensional figures. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting, this story about um, Freitas again, like she she clearly wants to protect her unborn child, and so she she tries to meet the natives who are attacking her. Um, and it's it's like this kind of really astonishing image of kind of fierce, not violence, but at least she's prepared to kind of mm-hmm. defend herself. Um, and, and like, it, she's so vulnerable at the same time. And then if you kind of follow those two aspects of her through the sources, you kind of see that being played out in multiple different ways really and um and especially you know there's this woman in Lakstanasara who's um goading her sons into killing you know killing someone and you sort of think well why would a woman do that to her sons knowing that then that can come back to her and the sons are so shocked I mean um they just I mean, the, the idea that they are sh- being shamed into taking taking up arms, it's it's really interesting when they kind of, the, the Sarah author makes the point that they, they refuse at first and then they have this sleepless night where the shame is just kind of unbearable that the, the, the mother is like goading them into <laughs> yeah. into going, going to kill someone and knowing that like they might end up being killed themselves. But then they just, they, they can't bear that mother's, <laughs> you know, shame, um, shaming. And that seems to be an extremely powerful um, sort of emotion mm-hmm. for, for these people. Um, and the sort of grip that the mother has on, on sons. Um, and I think it's just totally fascinating um, that, that mothers wield such an influence um, and you know you see that played out in various different ways, and especially like in the more sort of legendary sort of you know epic stories and um, the saga of the Volsungs and um, yeah that whole narrative cycle. And, um, but like mothers can be really ruthless on behalf of their own children as well. Mm-hmm. So it was a harsh world, and you have, had to kind of be prepared to take quite extreme measures sometimes um, and I think the, the kind of Norse sources are making the point that, that mothers were fully prepared to go go to great lengths to kind of do things that they thought would benefit their family in the long run even though there were risks involved in, in those decisions as well. Yeah and I guess it, it kind of illustrates the impact of a woman's voice and especially, I suppose, in a society where honour is really important for men too. Absolutely. And um, and it kind of shows that um, the, the central role of the family and um, how there are often not a lot of other things to consider than 
and like what your family thinks of you mm-hmm. and that's the greatest problem and, and challenge that people face and and yeah to be kind of shamed by your own mother is, is <laughs> something that the saga authors are clearly they really preoccupied by yeah no it's definitely something to be avoided eh? <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so another um, area I find really interesting is textiles and um, it was just kind of when I was reading about the manufacture of clothing and even sales, it was just phenomenal the amount of work that was involved. I was wondering, were these skills that would be taught from a very early age, um, young girls would um, be maybe working with their mothers or grandmothers or extended mm. family? I mean, here you, you kind of you tend to run into a problem of um, sources actually because the song authors and the poets are usually not terribly interested in kind of documenting daily life. Um, so sometimes you kind of get these glimpses um, into people's like on you know just ordinary lives. And there's like one reference I think Wilderid or Goodread, um, who's a character in Eric Saga. Leida, Eric the Red Saga, um, she kind of mentions at some point that she um, stayed with her foster mother and she learned things from her foster mother and um, I kind of speculated a little bit in the book that um, this might have been a, a sort of normal thing in our society that you would maybe send a girl to a fr- you know family friend to learn skills um, but yeah, like realistically, probably most pe- most girls probably learned the textile work from their mothers and grandmothers, and it was just something that you had to be doing all of the time, like in between your other tasks, um, because like just the work of making, you know, one garment um, that would have been like weeks and weeks of work for one person, and so um, yeah, it was just a constant presence in your life to make textiles mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Absolutely. Just um, reading about the preparation of the wool just in order to yeah. make your thread and things, you know, it's just from the beginning until the end, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah, and, and I think it sort of gets dismissed quite a lot um, as, like, women's work and it's just handiwork or something, but the amount of skill and experience that you needed to... To make good quality items, I think um, is something that we we can't really get you know wrap our heads around. Maybe unless you know um, someone who <laughs> does a lot of that kind of work and uh, is very old, like from you know a period when you really had to you know, make do and mend a lot more mm-hmm. and um, make your own clothes and so on. Gosh, and. Another aspect of Viking life, um, of course, is violence. We've touched kind of briefly on that. Um, it's this idea of shield maidens, and I think that's really captured people's imaginations so much. And um, I was wondering, do you think that we are perhaps getting closer to solving the riddle of, say, the Burka burial and um, the existence of these fantastic female warriors? I don't know, really. I think um, the amount of debate about the Burka grave and and uh, these issues maybe relative to how many graves like that or how many literary characters who are women warriors um, is I think the, the kind of 
this disparity between how many of these characters there are relative to others in the Norse sources and like how much time we actually spend discussing is really interesting and I think that probably tells us more about like what we as a culture maybe now are interested in rather than anything very much about Vikings and Norse people. Um, I think the, the discussion about the Birka burial has been really interesting because it's moved, I think, maybe general understanding of rituals and like graves and like how people buried their dead um, forward, you know, in, in many different ways. Um, and I think like burial archaeology is really, really fascinating, but I think maybe not that many people understood very much about it until archaeologists um, have been doing, you know, such a good job of uh, explaining, you know, what is a funeral, what is a ritual, um, and, you know, we've maybe understood much better that like, there's so many aspects of, of these rituals that are very symbolic, mm -hmm. and, um, and people might have been putting stuff into the graves of their loved ones that, like, didn't necessarily mean that you know, they used them in their daily life or something. And so we know, for example, that people put um, items like weapons or brooches um, and stuff into graves that were much, much older than the person. And so um, they might not have used them. It might have been a family heirloom, for example, and people might, might have been making some kind of statement about like, the family and its identity and then, you know, the, the kind of maybe some sort of heroic uh, uh, reputation of the family. Um, and so it doesn't, like if there's a woman who's buried with a sword, it might have been used by her, but it might also have been a statement about um, the family's values. Or, you know, there's all kinds of theories. There's so many different um, interpretations. And so some people think that the, the woman's husband, for example, or brother or father or something might have died abroad on some Viking um, expedition and then um, the woman might have died at home and then been sort of given a funeral for him as well. And so she was almost like a prop <laughs> uh -huh. in the man's funeral. And so that's why they were kind of putting stuff that was supposed to symbolize his life more than hers into her grave and like there's just a lot of different interpretations of these graves um and i think in many ways as i say that just the whole debate has really opened up all kinds of questions about um just how we memorialize our dead and how we live and push against the boundaries that like society puts on us um you know according to our gender and mm -hmm. uh, social status, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like I've definitely learned a lot in the last two, three years, um, just from engaging with, with various different, you know, scholars and, and people who do living history or, you know, reenactment, all sorts of people who have something to say about, about these issues. Oh, it's fascinating. I have to say, 
burial goods is something I find really, really interesting. And I've often found myself wondering about it, whether um, it was, you know, maybe a gift um, or a token from a loved one that they wanted to include with the person who's being laid to rest. Or was it um, a reflection of maybe what the family did or, you know, Mm -hmm. their history or or was it purely symbolic? And it's just so interesting, I think, to read about it and, and, you know, lots of different interpretations. And it's quite an exciting area, I think, to research. Yeah, I think it's and especially when, you know, I think there's so many graves that are pretty straightforward in, in some ways. Um, and But then when you get such a mysterious grave where you have the bones of someone who um, whose DNA was female, um, but the bones don't show any signs of the, the, the person having been a warrior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think they've, they've definitely found graves. Like, there's this kind of... Um, mass grave that I mentioned in the book that's in St. John's College, Oxford, where um, they did the analysis of their teeth and so on and established that these were people from Scandinavia who were probably Viking invaders and they got unlucky and they were all killed. Um, And, you know, when they analysed the bones, they found that um, many of them had definitely been warriors because they were in really good shape, but also they had, like, various kind of wounds in their bones that had healed so you would kind of be able to argue that this was a warrior based on what what the bones tell you but when you have a skeleton where it doesn't really seem clear that the person had that sort of lifestyle you know can you still say this this was a warrior so i feel like this this whole field is probably de- developing quite rapidly at the moment and there's like more and more um, you know, sort of DNA tests being carried out and, and isotope analyses and all kinds of things, um, but also new interpretations that are more based in, in humanities uh, methods and um, using anthropology and history of religion and all, all sorts of different frameworks um, in, in order to analyse um, the grave goods and the, the layout of the grave and and you know all all different aspects of it. So I think this is certainly we're we're learning a lot these days. There really is so much to consider, and I think it's an area that will continue to attract a, a lot of attention. People are just so fascinated by it. I'm also really really fascinated by graves like the Oseberg grave, which is the grave of two women, and it was this massive big burial mound with a ship inside it, and all kinds of really like beautiful things and textiles and it must just have been such an expensive burial and such a display of wealth and status and power and um i sort of you know i I think most of the items in that grave are extremely sort of gendered feminine you know the there's all kinds of textile tools there's for example like a tool for making um tablet woven items kind of quite narrow strings of fabric that people used to put like on for example on the edges of of the neck uh the collar and um on the front of of sleeves and maybe used as belts and so on and so these two women they were buried with all kinds of items that were definitely kind of you know more associated with what what we would call maybe the female sphere the women's work and so on but um 
but the, de the debate at the moment doesn't seem to be focused on this grave, for example, and, um, you know, who were these women? Were they rulers? Um, was one sacrificed um, to accompany the other? Yeah. And there's, there's so many questions swirling around that grave. Um, like, if you look at the history of, of, of that grave, like, and how people have studied it. Um, but for some reason, you, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be as much discussed relative to the Burka grave at the moment. Goodness, the, the Osberg burial really is remarkable, though, and the ship itself is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful, and I, oh, I went there last December to see it, and... Um, I just hadn't realized how intricate some of those carvings are, for example. I mean, mm. I've seen pictures of them, but when you see them up close, you, you see just like how fine the work is. And um, it's just astonishing. And, and just the amount of skill and, and like just time that must have gone into that ship. And like the, mm. you know, there was a carriage in the ship and a sleigh and all kinds of items, and um, yes, it's just phenomenal, just the, the, the craft of the Viking Age. And then every single, you know, surface was, was mm -hmm. carved and decorated, and, and um, you know, something was there, and just the amount of resources that, mm. I mean, you must have had to have, like, a team of craftsmen working, you know, for years just to make all of that stuff. Oh goodness, it really is incredible when you think about it. I wonder if we can look at another area of life for women and um, I was just wondering what the options might have been for an unmarried woman in Norse society and possibly what some of the reasons might have been that had kept her from marrying. I mean for most women it was really, you know, it, to, to marry was a good thing. There are a few women like sort of tucked away usually like in the more of the margins of the written texts um you know there's a few settlers in the book of settlements who are women and um independent so we don't really know sometimes they might have been widows like there's one who settles in the west fjords of iceland who has a, a, an adult son so she must be a widow or probably um whereas there's another one who her brother gives her a plot of land, and then she she's much more of a folkloric figure, actually, called Gavrilir. And she kind of tends to sit outside her house and um, try to get people to come in. And um, she always has a table full of food. Um, I kind of mention her in the book. I think she's so fascinating because, mm -hmm. you know, she's clearly not a very realistic figure um, and this idea of someone having a full table of food always and sort of luring people in I mean that sort of tells me that people were probably hungry a lot and um, have this sort of fantasy yeah I mean we don't really know very much about um, women living alone sort of from the archaeology but like from what we know um, you know most people probably lived in households of about maybe seven, eight, nine, ten people. So there would have been usually like a, a married couple and maybe some children and then like some servants and maybe maybe some uh, grandparent or something like that. So, I mean, if you were an unmarried woman, you would probably be, you know, living in a household like that as a servant or maybe as a, like the sister of the, 
one one person in the couple or, or something and that wouldn't necessarily have been such a great life I mean mm -hmm. you you probably didn't have a lot of privacy or disposable income or independence <laughs> really gosh so I guess if we look at the other side of marriage then and um from the sagas, on what grounds might one seek a divorce and alternatively, what would be the reasons for staying in an unhappy marriage? And there are some really wonderful examples in the, the sagas of people kind of heading towards divorce. Yes, I mean, in, in the sagas, it kind of gets dramatised and um, sort of sometimes a little bit manipulated by the saga author, you know, mm -hmm. for, for drama. <laughs> um I don't really know how far we can trust them um, on, you know, like I think there's there's one saga where the woman has to kind of go and um, stand in a certain area of the house and, and say, like, I divorce you. Like, th there's some sort of ritual where, you know, we don't find that in any other source and not in the laws. So, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of questionable whether that actually existed. But... Um, but I think, yeah, grounds for divorce. I mean, there were a few different grounds, and one of them, I think, was the whether you know if the marriage hadn't been consummated, and that sort of again in Yalsana that gets um, manipulated for for drama. And um, there's this queen Gunhild <laughs> of Norway who puts a curse on this hapless Icelander, and um, that he. He, he'll never be able to consummate his marriage and, and that is indeed what happens um, but like in the more kind of prosaic accounts of, of marriages that are unhappy if the woman can get a divorce she needs a way out so I think the, the greatest concern is does she have the support of, of her family or does she have a new husband waiting for her who can support her and, um, and I kind of take a few examples where there's um, a woman I'm very sort of interested in as a character called Þuríður in the saga of the people of Eiri, or Eirvika saga. And she kind of gets um, married off to this man that she considers to be beneath her socially, but he's a political ally of her uh, brother. And um, and then that marriage is really unhappy, and she has an affair uh, with this sort of um, flame of hers, former flame called Bjorn, and it seems to be kind of like the saga author kind of makes it clear that like, everyone knows that they're having this affair, but the husband is too much of a coward that he doesn't confront her, and he's not able to like keep her in check basically, oh, and. Um, but Bjorn doesn't set up anything for her to be able to divorce her husband. So even if legally she's allowed to do it, um, like it's just not feasible for her right. because like, where is she going to go? He's not offering her a new home. The brother doesn't want the divorce because the husband is his ally. So even if, you know, she's allowed to divorce, like, it's just not a realistic option for her. She really shows that, like, even if something is legally possible, it's not realistically possible, yeah. necessarily. 
Another part of life that must have been a reality for so many was the loss of a partner and becoming a widow. I was really struck by how a woman might show her distress at losing her husband and what might happen if his death had been met violently. And I was just wondering what kind of pressures or expectations might a woman find put upon her? Yeah, I mean, the, there's definitely ways in which people are expected to react. And um, especially if you die of grief, that's sort of approved of by the saga authors usually as... Um, showing what a loyal wife you were. Um, but apart from that, um, there there are kind of very intricate descriptions, both in the poetry and the sagas, about um, how a woman should behave initially. And um, they kind of tend to agree that a woman should be lamenting. Mm. And so she's um, crying and she often has the hair loose, and she's kind of wailing, and um, and then on the other, the flip side of that, she uh, she sort of praises the husband, and then the audience for that is usually the husband's male kin or her male kin, and the kind of subtext of that is usually the that that then it's their turn to go and avenge this man, and so everybody's sort of playing their des- designated role in this, but. Um, the saga authors, again, they kind of tend to mine these these um, cultural norms for drama, and so they they show that it's it's like not everybody necessarily um, behaves in the way that you know is expected of you, and then other people tend to take that badly, and there's a conflict, and mm, that can often be very disastrous. <laughs> um, and then. Like in one of the poems, the the Eddic poems, you know, in in the poetic acta, there's um, there's like a woman Gudrun, and when her husband dies, she just kind of becomes catatonic, and she doesn't do anything, and it's not really clear whether she's just completely frozen or whether she's not engaging in mm. you know the the usual behavior because she's angry or you know she, for some reason she's rejecting mm-hmm. what's expected of her um but at any rate um the onlookers like the other women are really upset that she's not doing the, the usual lamenting and then they sort of they they try to push her into it and um and she just resists or doesn't do it for some reason and then in the end they take off the, the textile that's covering her husband's body and then there's this description of her of seeing him lifeless and bloody and then that that's the point at which she breaks mm. down and starts crying and so on i remember when i used to t- uh, teach these texts and you know the students would often say like i like i've just never lost anyone close to me you know because they would usually be quite young and for the norse people and the vikings like just death was much more of a presence and mm. um i think it's difficult maybe for us to understand just how how much of a physical reality you know what it, what it was and having the body of someone who's been slain in a feud like just yeah like on your floor or something and you know how would you react and I think it's really interesting that these authors are like exploring that question oh it really is and something else I also find interesting is the role of the the vulva or the seeress and um, in Norse mythology the Voluspa is one of my favorite poems and 
Just wondering, what do we learn about these women from the sagas? Yeah, that's actually one of my favourite poems. Oh, too. excellent. Yeah. I think it's maybe the poem that made me want to be a scholar. I, I think it's one of the ones that really got me into mythology and wanting to discover more, I think, about the poems. And it's absolutely smashing. It's just amazing. And it's like, it's what's amazing about it as well is that, you know, I've been reading it since I was a teenager because we had to, it was, it was a set text when I was um, in high school as a teenager. <laughs> And, you know, I still, like, when I read it, uh, I just find it so thrilling and I get caught up in the story of Ragnarok and then, you know, the, the rebirth and everything. Oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah, like, that poem, I mean, what's so interesting about it is that um, it's all spoken by this female character, the Velva, or the prophetess, or Ceres. Um it's it's um all her vision and she's the one who has the knowledge that Odin is desperately seeking and, and she's telling him what's gonna happen. Um and I think maybe that's not always acknowledged um that much when, when we talk about the sort of mythology as a whole and its theories of Odin and Thor centric maybe. Mm-hmm. That the Velva figure like in when that get, kind of gets put into more like you know the human world and not the the mythological world that figure gets sort of portrayed in slightly different ways like in different texts and sometimes like in Eric Saga the Saga of Eric the Red there is um this community of Norse people living in Greenland um times are extremely hard they yeah they're, they're having a hard season and then then there is this woman figure who um is known as like the little prophetess and she seems to go around to different farms and tell prophecies and then um she comes to the farm in question and um performs a ritual and like the whole ritual is sort of described intricately and um and she tells everyone that things are going to be fine and they'll pull through and she tells goodread this prophecy that she's going to have a particularly splendid life and um and you know, obviously, the the sort of function of that character in in the greater context of the saga as a whole is just kind of to add to the portrait of Gudrid as this amazing woman. Mm-hmm. But um, but all of the details that are mentioned are kind of showing her as quite exotic, um, but you know, respectable. Mm-hmm. But then you know, there's there's other texts that don't necessarily show women with these sorts of abilities and roles as as um, entirely positive and they aren't always treated as nicely as this woman um, and we don't really know whether North society actually had a role for women like this um, I mean it seems quite likely that you know there was something of the sort um, even though the sagas are obviously you know, they're being written in the 1200s, 1300s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, they might sort of, their representation of pagan customs might not always be completely reliable, <laughs> let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and people obviously sort of had a hard time sometimes, you know, just sort of reconciling uh, themselves with the fact that their ancestors were pagans. And there's this kind of quite complicated... Um, relationship with the pagan past often in the sagas um, but then 
I mean, I sort of mentioned in the book that there are these graves of these um, women where there are these, you know, these sticks or rods or whatever they were. Um, And we don't really know what function, I mean, they don't always really seem to have had like any sort of practical function, like the archaeologists are just baffled by them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, some people say that these sticks or rods were like measuring rods and that they all kind of tend to be the same length. And so they must have been, you know, for measuring lengths of textile or something. But then um, other interpretations say that they were like symbols of authority and power. Some archaeologists are very, you know, convinced that that these objects were were magic rods or something. Uh-huh. Um, Gosh. And so that this means that, that these graves were the, the graves of actual... that's that's incredible actually yeah it's really really cool and i mean it's one of those questions like you know we will never really be able to settle it once and for all Mm -hmm. but um we can kind of work our way to what the most likely scenario was oh goodness yeah i mean it's absolutely fascinating area to research so johanna if there's a saga you could recommend that's a good place to start with what might that be I sort of always go between um, lots of different texts, but since we've been talking quite a lot about Eric the Red Saga, I think maybe that would be quite an excellent place to start because it's um, got so much action and so many interesting female characters. There's Un, the woman who escapes um, civil war in Scotland. Caithness, actually, I think she was. And she sails to Iceland via Orkney and the Faroes and marries off her granddaughters there. Then um, she goes off to Iceland and takes land there and settles and becomes this matriarch. And then it kind of follows her family and um, ends up in Greenland, as I was talking about before, and even North America. And it's not very long either. And so I think that would be quite a good place to start. Well, Johanna, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely delightful. And for listeners, where might they be able to purchase a copy of your wonderful book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World? The book came out just a few days ago from Bloomsbury. And if you go to the Bloomsbury website, so bloomsbury.co.uk, and just put in Valkyrie, please, um, if you enjoy this sort of thing, um, go, go to Bloomsbury's website or any reputable bookstore excellent and i'll include all the links in the show description today as well thank you no problem and of course if you would like to get in touch with either johanna or myself do feel free to email mlegendlore at gmail.com or twitter at lore myth the podcast is also on facebook and patreon.com forward slash myth legend lore As always, huge thank you to my Patreon family and everyone at home. I really do hope this episode has brightened up your day just a wee bit. I'm Siobhan Clark. Thank you for listening to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast.